it's not enough just to build a great business, unfortunately. You also have to actually get in front of folks because places like Microsoft, IBM, Oracle, who have M&A teams, they look at thousands and thousands of deals a year. There's just a lot of companies out there, so you have to do something to stand out. Hi, I'm Kyle Poyer from OpenView's expansion team, where I help software companies accelerate their revenue growth so they can become market leaders. This season on Build, we're dedicating every episode to a different SaaS benchmark, think growth rates, unit economics, the rule of 40, and so on. Sadly, this is the last episode of season two, but don't worry, we'll be back with season three this fall. And today's final episode is all about exit strategy. When CEOs should start thinking about an exit, and how to choose from several different options to find the best outcome for your business. I'm joined by John McCullough, VP of Corporate Development here at OpenView, and Darren Abrahamson, Managing Director at Bain Capital. John, thanks for joining this week's OV Build podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. To kick things off, could you talk a bit about your background and role here at OpenView? Sure. So I joined about three years ago. Prior to OpenView, I was doing corporate development within software at a company here in Boston called Rocket Software. And I was mainly driving our inorganic growth strategy, so acquiring other companies mostly and setting up some partnerships as well. Before that, I was in investment banking within financial technology, mainly advising companies on sell-side M&A, buy-side acquisitions, and raising capital. Prior to that, I was in the uh, asset management world before grad school. Now at OpenView, so I, I joined really to launch our corporate development function, which in a nutshell is helping drive strategic and financial outcomes for the portfolio companies. That includes helping them set up partnerships, helping them find potential acquirers, and executing those acquisitions, and then also raising capital. And... We do all that really in two ways. One is helping on deal execution, so creating and, and executing those partnerships, acquisitions, and capital raises, but also really owning a network of potential partners, possible partners for the portfolio companies, and driving connections into that network. So you've really seen and talked to all sides in the exit landscape. In your opinion, what does the current exit landscape look like for SaaS startups? Is it a good time or a bad time to exit? It's a good time. You know, all else equal, I'd say it's a good time. And it's been a good time for a while for a couple reasons, really two. One, valuations are really good. So in the same way that it's a founder-friendly capital raise market at the early stage, it's also a founder-friendly and venture investor friendly exit landscape because valuations are good. The enterprise value to forward revenue multiple these days for public SaaS comps, the 50 or so public SaaS comps that we track is around seven or eight times. So really, really healthy multiples. That's up from earlier in the year. And then secondly, the options to exit are really great. So you think about exiting, you think about either going IPO or, or having your business be sold. On the public side, the IPO market's been strong as of late. It's bounced back after being quiet for a couple of years. I think five companies filed for IPO, five tech companies filed for IPO in April. Before that, Q1 was the best quarter since 2015 for tech IPOs. So you know, you've had companies recently like DocuSign and others filing, which has been pretty notable. So it's good to see the public markets back. And then on the acquisition or sell side, large tech companies are still acquiring. There's a lot of cash at places like Salesforce, who recently acquired MuleSoft. 
Oracle, IBM, others, they're continuing to do deals and they want to do deals. And then also private equity emerging as a path, doing lots of acquisitions in tech and software. So it's a good time to exit. And many startups listening to this podcast might be thinking, I don't need to be thinking about an exit right now. I'm still in hyper growth mode. What's your response to comments like that? Everyone should be thinking about it. It's not really too early. I don't think you know a company that's $5 million in revenue and growing really fast should spend as much time thinking about it as a $50 or $100 million revenue company, but it's never really too early. I think it's the CEO's job, among many other things, to create optionality for the business. At the very least, you know, if you are heads down, hyper growth, execution focused and small, at least start to understand who the relevant audience is, who your potential acquirers are both tech companies and private equity firms, and then start trying to get on their radar a bit. If you are thinking about this in terms of hours, it might only be a few hours a month if you're a really young company, but you have to think long-term and sort of dig your well before you're thirsty and start developing relationships with the right folks. And there's a couple ways to do that that we can talk about, but I would just say everyone should be thinking about it. It's part of the job as a CEO. And then what are the steps to get started with strategic corp dev? How should a startup be thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, we, as you know, we, we wrote a playbook on this. Uh, you can find it on our website, our, our corporate development playbook. There's sort of a, a couple pulls to, to that tent, so to speak. But really, in a nutshell, it's just about getting in front of that target audience I mentioned and, and nurturing deep relationships with them over time. It's not enough just to build a great business, unfortunately. You also have to actually get in front of folks because places like Microsoft, IBM, Oracle, who have M&A teams, they look at thousands and thousands of deals a year. There's just a lot of companies out there, so you have to do something to stand out. So I think I think it's sort of threefold. One is, as I mentioned before, identify your targets, understand who you may fit with and, and where you might fill a product gap, which large tech companies could use a technology like yours. So do that analysis a little bit, or the PE firms that might be interested in acquiring you as well. Two, do the outreach. Try to get in front of folks at these places you know, leverage your network to do that, leverage your venture backers who have great relationships and ecosystems, leverage investment banks, which people definitely don't do enough for introductions and things like that, and get out and just start, even if it's cold calling, create that top of funnel and start creating relationships. And then three, I think it's about nurturing. Once you've had a meeting or two with the corp dev or BD teams at these places or the product folks, find a reason to check in with them every month, keep them updated on what you're doing and keep kind of selling the combined value prop between you and them. And you spent a lot of time recently with private equity firms. How have you seen the role of PE evolve in the SaaS exit landscape? Yeah, I mean, PE is, to put it simply, is just on a tear in SaaS exits and doing deals in tech in general. I think they did last year uh, about two times as many acquisitions in tech as they had done about five years before that. So seriously growing in absolute terms and relative terms growing as well. So they did more deals last year, more buyouts of tech companies and software, I believe, specifically than the largest U.S. publicly traded tech companies like the IBMs and Oracles, et cetera, which is the first time that's ever happened. So they're actually fighting for business with the big tech companies, which is a really good thing for pricing. And I mean, that's happening for a couple of reasons. One is they have a ton of dry powder to put to work. Private equity are raising huge funds. And I think there's about $300 billion of unused, ready-to-invest capital at the 20 or so largest financial sponsors focused on tech. So there's a lot to do. And then also they understand SaaS better. 
than they used to. SaaS has matured as a business model. Private equity and their lenders, who supply them a lot of their debt capital to do deals, just understand the dynamics of recurring revenue, SaaS revenue, and they're comfortable with that recurring nature, even though there's not many hard assets in the business against which to collateralize and raise debt and that sort of thing. So they've gotten familiar with it. And you're seeing that in high pricing. I mean, there are a lot of private equity deals getting done at five to 10 times revenue, which is pretty amazing. You just didn't see that in the past. Publicly disclosed figures of deals like SolarWinds and Cvent and others, high single-digit multiple pricing. And they're paying for growth, not just profitability, which is a change from the past as well. The only other thing I'd say is, you know, they've always been this, but they're very good at doing deals. So in a lot of ways, they're a better home for a business than even going public or, or selling to a big tech company because they move very, very fast. So high speed of close and high certainty of close. You could argue that it's cleaner than going public. There's less prep, less regulation associated with it. No public position to unwind. No lockups, no dilution from selling part of your stake to the public markets. And then there's always a chance to roll equity, meaning a founder or an early investor can keep equity in the company if they believe in the thesis that the private equity buyer has put together. So in general, they're a huge, huge theme in SaaS right now. And I think CEOs need to be thinking more and more about that as a great exit path, especially considering the prices that deals are getting done at. And you mentioned PE firms with their dry powder and better understanding of SaaS are starting to move into the space that strategics might have held. But some of them might also be looking more at profitability or rule of 40 versus, say, strategic acquirers. What do you think startups need to do to position themselves to be attractive to PE buyers? Is it any different than to be attractive to strategic buyers? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of overlap, but some differences for sure. When I say overlap, I think, you know, solid business fundamentals, good unit economics, ideally you're growing, ideally you've got a very good product and a lot of market share and and a pretty big market. But at the same time, you know, when, when you talk to a tech or strategic buyer, you're probably talking about how you fill some sort of product gap for them. That's not really the case of private equity. You're, you're, you're viewed as a standalone business most likely. So it is probably a little bit more about the financial performance of the business, you know, the size of the market, things like that. I think that they put more emphasis than the big tech companies on certain things like I think scale. I think you probably want to be at least 15, 20 million in revenue before you sell to a private equity buyer just because they have a lot of capital to put to use. And as much as they are doing smaller deals lately, they're going to view you as a platform to do other things like acquire smaller companies. So scale is probably more important. I think efficient growth is, is even more important. You know, it's not just growth at all costs and burning cash to grow, but you have to be mindful of costs. You have to have gross margins that are decent, probably above 80% or so and as I mentioned good front and back end unit economics that allow you to grow profitably stickiness sticky revenue is really important to talking about you know your retention rates ideally gross retention being above 80-85% and net retention probably being above 100% and you know hopefully you're investing in customer success and retention if you're talking to private equity and I mentioned this a little bit but market leadership is more important than even the size of your market so a small TAM or aggressive market is okay if you're kind of the leader in it. Private equity, actually, they love verticals 
verticalized software like a specific industry that might not even be that big as long as you are in a leadership position. They see that as really defensible. So those are some of the things that you'd want to emphasize. I think that in terms of like positioning, you know, like with strategics, get out and talk to them early, build relationships over time, dig that well before you're thirsty, and understand which firms might be interested in you and your space and that sort of thing. And the last thing I'd say is as you get to scale up, think about an M&A thesis, you know, which other companies in your ecosystem could a private equity firm use you to acquire and combine with? Because most firms, PE shops, are looking to grow inorganically post-investment. So if you can develop some sort of thesis around who you could be combined with, that would certainly help too. So for those who maybe aren't growing as efficiently or have had some churn problems, go listen to our earlier episodes around retention and efficient growth. And then, John, in the exit planning process, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see that podcast listeners should be trying to avoid? Yeah, I think the biggest one is ignoring it and just simply not doing it because your show head's down focused and not creating that optionality I mentioned. You should always allocate some time to this, even if it's a few hours a month, because it pays off. And I think also waiting too long in a couple senses. One, waiting until your cash runway is too short. I mean, if if you don't have financing options from your existing investors and can't raise capital and you've got less than six months of cash, that's not really long enough to hire a bank and go run a process. You need probably at least a year's worth of cash, honestly, to, to feel comfortable because if you get close to your cash out date and you're talking to potential buyers, they will leverage that uh, to drive the price down because they see sort of desperation. So always have an eye towards your cash out date and work backwards from there. And then waiting too long also just more generally to get help from an investment bank or your venture investors to start seeding and warming the market. I think that often companies and boards decide, okay, let's let's go hire a bank. We want to sell the business in six months, but they've done no legwork before. They haven't been out having those discussions. And it takes a really long time to turn those seeding discussions and pollination discussions into something. So just start early is the only other thing I'd say. And let's end on a high note, shall we? Like, are there any recent success stories that you can highlight of companies that have gone through this process and had a really good result? We just sold a company called Socrata to Tyler Technologies. There's not a ton publicly available on it, so I can't talk to you much, but I can say that, you know, from my standpoint, Socrata did a lot of the right things for years leading up to that sale, including getting to really know Tyler and having a lot of discussions around the fit and understanding the combined value proposition and this was long before any banks or lawyers or anyone else was involved. It was senior people at both places talking and, and sort of idea generating and building a relationship. And it took a really, really long time. But I think it created a great outcome and it got people comfortable. And I think, you know, from Socrata's standpoint, they, they didn't necessarily need to be doing that stuff. They could have stayed heads down focused. But again, they, they created that optionality and had time to prove out the fit with Tyler to everyone at Tyler from what I saw. And, and I think it turned out to be a really good thing for both sides. So number one action item for those listening to this podcast, if you haven't already built relationships with the strategic players in your ecosystem and most logical PE buyers, go bug your investors, bug your connections and start having those conversations. Well, thanks, John, for joining us for this episode of Build. Thank you. Now we'll hear from Darren Abrahamson, Managing Director of Bain Capital, about private equity as an exit option and how to choose the best partner for your business. Darren, we're thrilled to have you on the Build Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
And today's episode is about exit strategy. Before we get into that, could you tell us a bit about your background and your role at Bain Capital? I've been at Bain Capital now about 13 years. Before that, I was a consultant briefly, focused on a lot of technology and innovation. At Bain Capital, started out in a generalist role, but for the last eight or nine years, I've been exclusively focused on technology and, and primarily software within that. And I, along with two other partners, co-head our North America tech activity on the, on the large cap PE side. And what was your first ever job, and did it have an influence at all on where you are today? So I had a lot of jobs when I was young. I worked for a sort of individual tax accountant in Newton at one point. I did pizza delivery for a while. Probably the one that maybe was more formative, I worked at a startup in 1999, summer of my freshman year in college, called Mascot Networks in Cambridge, which was basically kind of Facebook well before Facebook. So they had this idea of taking college Facebooks online but actually going to the universities one by one and charging them to do it. And obviously in the downturn, that business went away fairly quickly, but it was a good lesson in kind of the importance of timing and and business model and technology in particular. And, you know, you mentioned being at Bank Capital since 2005. From the outside, it seems like there's been a pretty big shift in private equity and how PE thinks about software as a service. What changes have you noticed over the years? Yeah, I think there's been a huge shift. If you go back to, you know, when I started in the industry, There were a a number of software buyouts, but really most of them were kind of classic vertical market applications, you know, on-prem, license maintenance businesses, generally fairly high margin with good cash flow that could be levered. And the value creation opportunities were about sort of tweaking and optimizing. So some pricing, some margin, maybe some accretive tuck in M&A. Over time, I think as those tended to be successful, you saw investors expand into other areas. So five or six years ago, you started to see more um, investors looking at infrastructure software, and there was kind of a wave of acquisitions in that space, you know, more focused on cleaning up sort of lower growth, more mature businesses with often cost as kind of the core thesis. And then I think as, as the pace of innovation and change has accelerated and you've seen more emerging cloud and SaaS businesses, you know, disrupting industries and taking share, you know, and frankly, as private equity firms have gotten more experienced and smarter about technology and have more money to invest, you know, I think you've seen naturally a lot more focus on these kinds of businesses. And so even though they've got very different characteristics to some of the traditional private equity targets, you know, often sort of much higher growth, lower margin, or sometimes losing money because of where they are in their stage, I think people have realized the value they're providing and the value of being kind of on the right side of that historical shift as opposed to the wrong side. And that's led to a lot more activity in that space. And then there's been other things that have happened to facilitate that. So lenders have gotten you know, much more comfortable with underwriting against recurring revenue as opposed to EBITDA. And so you've seen a number of things evolve over the years. But really, in the last three to four years, the number of kind of smaller, higher growth SaaS businesses that we have started to see in our pipeline has gone, you know, gone up exponentially. Yeah, and it, more confidence that, you know, customers aren't just going to walk out the door with a subscription business model. Correct. And putting yourself into more of the founder shoes, like what makes private equity an interesting exit option relative to strategic acquirers and even a public sale? Yeah, you know, look, I think it always really depends on the business. And so, you know, my view is if you're a business operating in a very large market or you're one of these kind of platform companies that just has huge runway and, you know, a service now or workday at the extreme, but companies that have big market opportunities, you know, I would say often the public markets from a valuation perspective, at least in the current environment, are probably going to be your best path because they're rewarding companies where they see just huge runways for growth over a very long period of time. Now, public markets are fickle, and so that may change quickly. But today, I would say for those kinds of companies, that probably is the most logical path. 
I think, you know, strategic acquirers are always out there and, you know, they can sometimes pay a lot for businesses because they've got synergies or they're, you know, trying to move themselves into new business models. And so sometimes that's a good home, but oftentimes, you know, at least as I've seen it, they're not the best places for companies to continue to, to grow and innovate. And so a lot of times we've seen interesting businesses get acquired by larger companies and the team kind of drifts away and the businesses kind of stagnate and you sort of lose some of that energy and focus. And I think for a lot of founders and CEOs, private equity can be a pretty attractive place to kind of keep building businesses, make the right long-term investments, focus on customers, you know, not worry about kind of the quarterly earnings noise and the pressures from either public investors or, you know, in the case of a strategic kind of the corporate parent. And that can be a very kind of liberating thing. And so particularly for companies that feel like they've still got you know, more work to do in either refining the model or investing more to grow or expanding into new areas, or if they want to pursue, you know, more transformative M&A, you know, I think private equity can be a great home for those kinds of businesses. You know, we had a good example. We bought a company called Navicure in the healthcare IT space a couple of years ago. It was a relatively small, nice growing SaaS business that had other options of what they could have done. But we had a view that we aligned with management around really using that as a platform to drive consolidation. We then went and, and bought a, a larger company in the space called Zermid last year to put those two together and create kind of a clear market leader. And so those are the kinds of more transformative things that I think are easier done both out of the public markets and also with the backing of someone with you know capital and resources to help do that. So if that's sort of the path, I think private equity can often be a, a good home. Totally. And what's the right point that when a startup uh, founder should be thinking about exit options and you know, what metrics should they be showing to start to look compelling to a firm like Bain? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I think it's always, frankly, valuable for companies to be kind of thinking about exit, although we never sort of recommend that our companies plan for a specific exit type. So I have seen people who say, you know, we're totally focused on an IPO, we're totally focused on selling to this strategic. You know, our view is if you're making the right decisions for the business and for your customers, you're going to build value and that will be recognized whichever path you choose to go down. So I think it's always good to think about, although I wouldn't run the business that way. I think if you build good growing businesses, you have optionality. As relates to timing, I think it really depends on, frankly, the founder and management team and the investors and where they are. And so we see sometimes companies that have lots of great opportunity and maybe the management team is excited and wants to stay at it, but the investors maybe have been in for a long time. And so some portion of them want liquidity and you've got cap table issues to resolve. Sometimes you've got a founder who has created a lot of value and wants to take some money off the table, or sometimes maybe wants a bigger balance sheet to invest more. And so I think it really depends on the situation as to when the right time is. As to sort of the metrics, you know, look, at our firm on the private equity side, you know, we're investing at relatively large scale. And so typically we're focused on companies that are kind of getting closer to or above the sort of 100 million of, of ARR level. That said, you know, a lot of these companies are growing quickly and there's kind of value in building relationships and making sure we understand the business. And so getting to know folks earlier on is, is kind of a, a good thing. And so we're often quite frequently meeting with companies that are 50 million, 60 million kind of ARR, which may be too small today, but a year or two from now would kind of be in that sweet spot. More broadly, as I think about metrics, we look at them all. We don't have a strict criteria. You know, we don't have a, it's got to be, you know, LTV to CAC's got to be X or Y or the TAM's got to be X or Y. You know, fundamentally we think about is the product solving real problems for customers? You know, is there a big enough and growing market opportunity? And is the company demonstrating that they're able to penetrate and, and take share and capitalize on that opportunity? 
you know, what are the competitive dynamics like? You know, how differentiated is this product um, and the software and the technology? How well run is the company operationally? We see a lot of businesses that, in the effort to sort of try and get interest from folks like us or others, you know, overstate their TAM, overstate their market opportunity, and go after growth that, frankly, maybe they shouldn't. And so they're actually investing a lot more money than they should be relative to that opportunity. And sometimes we find the right thing to do is actually be a profitable 15 or 20% grower, not a unprofitable 40 or 50% grower. So just picking one metric, I think, is hard. But for us, it's really around fundamentally, what's the value proposition to the customers? Is that resonating in the marketplace? Are the customer economics, however you choose to define them, supportive of a business that over time can grow and scale and become profitable? Because again, for us, if you think back to sort of traditional private equity, to get comfortable with investing in a business that's losing money today or just around break even because they're plowing it all back into product and sales and marketing, you really need conviction that as that business scales over time, you will be able to scale into profitability because of the customer economics. And you may choose to invest that further, but you want to make sure that those, you know, the stickiness is there, the net retention is there, the upsell opportunity is there. So you're not going to just keep burning cash for something that, you know, you can't really grow and scale over time. Yeah. And it sounds like a number of the things you look at are a lot of the same things that like an open view looks at but from an earlier stage perspective. And you know, you touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to go deeper on the topic. When's the right time for a founder to start engaging with a firm like Bain? Like I know you said you like to talk to companies before they even hit the milestones where they're as attractive from an investment standpoint. But can you talk through like how does that relationship start? When should it start with a founder and a PE firm? Yeah, so we're spending a lot of time looking at different areas within technology and trying to find the interesting companies that are up and coming. And that's an important part of our business and our sourcing efforts. I think for founders and CEOs and companies, you know, you don't want to get overly distracted with kind of going out and meeting with every PE firm that wants to meet with you because you could do that all day, every day. <laughs> and you want to really focus on running the business and, and driving value and, and kind of the rest will take care of itself. You know, that being said, I do think for a host of reasons, you know, over time, starting to, if you think private equity ownership is a path that you might want to go down, starting to just build some knowledge about the space and the different players out there, get to meet some folks, because I think there are very different types of private equity buyers with very different strategies and very different approaches to how they invest, how they work with companies. And I think understanding that so you know when you're ready, kind of who you want to be talking to and building those relationships and frankly, like everything else, and I'm sure this is true for OpenView's investments, at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to who are the people that are actually going to be leading the deal, involved, on the board, what's that relationship like with the founder? And so if you can start to build some of those with the kinds of firms that you might be interested in talking to down the road, that obviously makes for an easier process and a smoother transition. Yeah, you really get to know the person because you're going to be about to embark on a long-term relationship with that so it's like marriage. We, you know, it, it is an important long-term relationship. Potentially harder to get out of. <laughs> so let's say a startup is fortunate and they have several buyout offers they could go with. In your opinion, how should they choose between them, assuming valuations are kind of fairly competitive? Like marriage, you want to pick a partner that's got alignment around vision and goals, the right cultural fit. And so to do that, you really want to spend time with people you want to make sure that the dynamics are right. Again, as I said, there's very different types of private equity buyers. So you've got some folks who are incredibly hands-on and prescriptive about how they want all their companies to operate. You've got others that are 
totally hands off and basically want to put in money and, and sort of stay out of the way. And, and a whole bunch uh, kind of in between. I put ourselves sort of more in the in-between camp where we want to be actively involved and helpful. And we've got resources that can support our businesses and our management teams. But we're not trying to dictate to them exactly what to do day to day. They run the company and we're there to provide governance and support and resources. So, But there's all different types along that spectrum and all different people and cultural approaches and, and ways people think about governance. So spending time with folks is really important. And then, you know, I always encourage people when they're entering into these processes in a meeting, in a sale process, everybody's kind of selling each other. The best way to do it is really to pick up the phone and call folks who've actually worked with those companies. Again, very, I'm sure it's very similar in your business. And so, you know, I love it when new CEOs or management teams or founders we're talking to will call founders and CEOs of companies that I've been involved with without asking me who to talk to and just and just go do it because that's the best way to get a sense of like, okay, when you're really working with these people, when you're sitting in the boardroom, when you have a question, when you need help, when times aren't, you know, when you miss a quarter, what are they like? And I think ultimately, again, leaving sort of valuation aside, that sort of relationship is critical. And I think that's true at all stages of investing. But in private equity, most of our investments tend to be control investments. So to some extent, it's even more important because it's going to be one firm often that you're really interacting with as opposed to having multiple people around the table from different backgrounds and styles. Totally. And I have one final question for you. You know, Looking ahead to the rest of the year, going into next year, what trends do you expect to see in the exit landscape and the role of PE? Yeah, that's always the, the tough question. Look, I think... Yeah, um, crystal ball anyway? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look, there's a lot of money coming into PE broadly and to technology PE in particular. So a lot of tech specialist funds are out raising larger and larger pools of capital. And I think that will continue to drive high levels of activity. You know, I think valuations are very high at the moment. And so there's always a question of, you know, will that continue or not? So I think there'll continue to be activity and you'll continue to see, particularly as relates to this conversation, there's a lot more kind of growing SaaS businesses that are getting to the size and scale where they become interesting for those large pools of capital. And so I expect that trend will continue. The wild card to me is really sort of the, the public markets. And so right now, just given the valuation levels and given the receptivity for IPOs, which is certainly higher than I would have said two or three years ago, I think that's a very interesting path for a lot of companies of, of this size and scale. But as I said, that can change quickly. And so how much ends up going to PE versus public is kind of hard to predict. But I think there'll be a, a wave of companies that at some point will realize that maybe the public markets for where they are in their life cycle are not the right path. And I think private equity will continue to be a, a fairly you know, robust sort of active exit path for them. Well, great. Thanks, Darren, for coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks for tuning in to season two. We'll be taking the summer off, but keep an eye out for season three this fall. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts, and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. You can compare yourself to your peers by checking out our benchmarking data at benchmarks.openviewpartners.com, and please help us improve our SaaS benchmarks by participating in the 2018 survey, which you can find on the same site, and keep an eye out for the results, which will also be released this fall. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter, which is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do that by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. 